word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this season 10 opener of Word, it's all about anecdotes as we feature stories relating to the first and only Latino governor of Arizona, Raul Hector Castro, affectionately known as Raulito. I don't remember my dreams often, very clearly. And the next morning I woke up and right then I knew that I was meant to write a children's book about his life. Plus, tales on the road about legendary troubadour Bob Dylan. I'm talking to all these different musicians who in various ways have pledged their time, often years, to Bob Dylan and his music. But first, you may have noticed a few changes surrounding the presentation and promotional elements of Word, including on KJZZ's social media. We felt like we needed to freshen up the show as it gained nationwide attention by featuring broader offerings which aren't confined solely to the Southwest or listeners in this region. For history buffs, the first season of KJZZ's Word Podcast started February 1st, 2019. Since then, we've produced nearly 75 episodes. You can find the archive at word.kjzz.org. This fall and winter, we have some interactive contests and prizes to celebrate our milestone of shows. So without further ado, let's launch this Season 10 opener. The regular season is winding down for baseball, so we wanted to check in with sportscaster Tim Haggerty, who has a new book filled with humorous anecdotes about the minor leagues. Haggerty used to call games in Arizona. I lived in Phoenix working in the Arizona Fall League and then later lived in Tucson broadcasting games for the AAA team there, the Tucson Padres. And I loved Arizona. My wife and I still go back to visit. How often do you get back to visit? Well, the San Diego Padres have their spring training in Peoria. So I'm back at least every March for that. And luckily living in El Paso, it's drivable for my wife and I. So we've been back multiple times in the decade since I left Tucson. The Padres AAA team relocated to El Paso for the 2014 season, and I was part of that. So uh, since then, I moved to El Paso, but have great memories of Tucson and Phoenix. You've called, I must imagine, hundreds of games in your time as a sportscaster. What is one item that you like most about doing it? There are folks who love the play-by-play aspect. There are folks who like the color commentating aspect. What's your favorite? That's a good question. I think you'd get a lot of different answers from different broadcasters on that. To me, I've been lucky enough to visit 49 states, and most of that has been through baseball. And just seeing the different flavor of baseball fans in different cities, different ballparks, they really not are all alike. I've broadcasted about 2,300 professional baseball games, and I also love that you never know what you're going to see that night. For example, the other night I was broadcasting a game in El Paso, and a batter took ball four. But the batter remained in the batter's box. The umpire didn't notice. The managers didn't notice. The fans didn't notice. I had to double check it on video. He stayed in the batter's box and took ball five. (laughs) And I've seen more than 2,000 games. I've never seen a five-ball walk before. Of course, baseball's basic rules say four balls. You get first base. And I'll probably never see that again. That's a great anecdote. And you've got a lot of anecdotes in your book called Tales from the Dugout. 
I want you to talk about some of them that occurred in this region in the past. In fact, uh, one time a Phoenix catcher was arrested for breaking an umpire's toe? Yes, this was in 1915. Phoenix had a catcher named Bird Lynn, and he tossed his bat at the umpire. And the bat landed on the umpire's foot and broke his toe. And Bird Lynn not only was thrown out of that game, but he was arrested for assaulting this umpire. That was one of the fun things researching this book was just seeing how much baseball history Arizona has prior to the Diamondbacks. You're talking about a professional baseball team in Phoenix in 1915. And where did you go to find some of these anecdotes in history? There were a lot of resources. For current stories, it was interviewing players, managers, coaches, and scouts. For past stories, it was using online newspaper archives. There also used to be an annual Spalding and Reach Guide. It began in the late 1800s and went through the early 1900s, and that was a great resource. Many of them are available through Library of Congress online. I also made a research trip to the Baseball Hall of Fame Library in Cooperstown. They have publications that aren't available anywhere else. That was a great trip, flipping through these archives that are so old that the Baseball Hall of Fame staff has you put on surgical gloves because they don't want your skin touching these publications that were printed more than a century ago. It's been tough over the last several years for Diamondbacks fans. Their AAA affiliate forfeited a game one time, and that's one of the anecdotes that makes it into your book. This was a very unusual situation. It was in 2008, the Diamondbacks AAA team, the Tucson Sidewinders, essentially ran out of available pitchers. Pitchers, especially the really valuable prospects that they have high hopes for, they're on strict pitch counts. There's only a certain amount of innings they can throw over the course of a season because the studies show if they push those limits, the pitcher's more likely to have future injuries. Well, the Diamondbacks AAA team at Tucson had a rainout, which means the next day they had a doubleheader, and they didn't have enough pitchers that they felt comfortable using in the game. So the Diamondbacks called the Pacific Coast League and said, I'm sorry, we're only ready to play one game today and not two, and we're going to forfeit the second game. So that got some headlines. A professional baseball team forfeiting a game. Well, speaking of Tucson, there was a rattlesnake delay in Tucson, as I understand. (laughs) What happened and for how long? Arizonans like you, Tom, and former Arizonans like me can probably know what it's like to be a little too close to a rattlesnake, how frightening that can be. In 1932, there was a Tucson outfielder who ran to his position, and he was surprised to see a rattlesnake. This was not a baby. This was a really intimidating scene. So the outfielder sprinted back to the dugout, grabbed a bat, and took care of this rattlesnake. (laughs) And then the inning continued. I know that wasn't a gentle animal control thing to do, but this guy was so terrified that he felt like it was self-defense. And the show must go on, so the game continued. Tim Haggerty is author of Tales from the Dugout, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. Tim, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us a little bit about your new book and also your career in sportscasting. Tom, great to talk to you and always to be back on the air or online in Arizona. You can find out a bit more about Tim Haggerty on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, a bilingual biography for children about Raul Hector Castro, affectionately known as Raulito. He was Arizona's first and so far only Latino governor. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature.
Football season is here, and that means tailgating time. If your tailgate doesn't function like it used to, consider donating that SUV or pickup to the KJZZ Vehicle Donation Program and support the programs you love. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. You can get a lot of things delivered these days, and now that includes the latest Arizona news from KJZZ's Sun Up podcast. I'm Phil Latzman. Everything you need to know to start each day delivered to you in this handy little podcast Go to KJZZ.org or wherever you get your podcasts and download KJZZ Sun Up today. Rio Salado College is proud to offer affordable online bachelor's degrees in high-demand fields such as teaching and public safety administration. Invest in your education and career without financial burden. More information at riosalado.edu. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Thanks for listening to this Season 10 opener. Next up, a bilingual biography for children about Arizona's only Latino governor. It's called Raulito and was chosen by the Arizona State Library's Center for the Book to represent the state on the Great Reads from Great Places list for this year's National Book Festival of the Library of Congress, which occurred in August in Washington, D.C. Author Ronnie Rivera Ashford was kind enough to sit down virtually with me to discuss her experience in writing it and the scope of this biography, which rose to life out of a dream. I would say that it covers the life and legacy of Raul H. Castro from before his birth, because there's a little bit of background about his parents, to his passing and the legacy that he left us. It gives us little tidbits of flavorful scenarios about each stage of his life. And his life was very diverse. I was surprised to read that not only did he grow up to be a teacher, he was also a boxer, an attorney, a judge, and a U.S. ambassador to three nations. All of that, and as well, the first and only Latino governor of Arizona. Yes, that is very true. And I like to add, to date, he's the first and only Latino governor so far. In other words, let's leave that door open, right? So you're exactly right. He was an amazing athlete. And uh, from the time he was a youngster, he was the star of his football team at Douglas High School. That got him a scholarship to Flagstaff, which is now NAU. And then after his first or second year at NAU as the football quarterback, he realized that he didn't have the stature to continue to be the quarterback on the varsity football team. So that's when he took up boxing and he was also a track star. So he was really quite amazing in many different realms, athletic and educational. And his migration story, his family's migration story, can you tell us a little bit about that? They came to Arizona, I think, in 1918, correct? And, and what was the purpose of wanting to emigrate to the U.S.? Believe it or not, it wasn't a want at that time. It wasn't a desire. It was a need. And um, his father, Francisco Castro, uh, was... I would say a gentleman that worked really hard to support his family. He was a miner in Cananea, 
and the Cananea mines, I believe, were owned by Americans. And the miners there were not treated equally. Um, so the American miners had a lot of privileges, including hot showers after working long days and better pay. And Francisco Castro saw that disparity and he wanted to make it a better atmosphere for his colleagues. And so he formed a union and that was something that he got into a lot of trouble for. And the owner of the mine actually had him put in jail. And so there was some negotiation that went on with Chalita, Rosario Castro, Raul's mother, who now has nine children at this point. And she was very concerned that they were going to kill her husband in jail. And they did everything they could to get him out. And finally, the owner of the mine and the president of Mexico got in touch with people in the U.S. and said, can we just send them over there? We don't want them here anymore. So that's how they got over here. And in those days, you know, it's not like you had to have all kinds of legal documents. They just sent them across the border. This year's theme for the National Book Festival is Everyone Has a Story. How do you think your book fits into that theme? Oh, I think it's perfect. (laughs) Raulito could not have been chosen at a better time because this is an exemplary story of one person who has overcome so many obstacles in his life, not just in this country, but coming from another country. And he's an amazing role model, very positive, no matter how many obstacles he faced, how much discrimination, how many doors were slammed in his face. He always overcame them. And in the time I got to know him and spend time with him, he always had a sense of humor about it, which amazes me. You know, I think it's wonderful when we can keep a positive attitude because it's that energy and vibration that we pass on to the people around us. Well, and also, as the adage goes, you laugh sometimes to prevent from crying, and humor has a way of helping people through adversity. When did you decide that he was going to be the inspiration for this book? I was fortunate to meet him when he was 96 and living in my my hometown of Nogales, Arizona, on the border, where that's where I grew up. And that's where he chose to retire and live the last 25 years of his life because he felt no he loved the board living on the border. And he felt Nogales was a very friendly border town. And that's why he moved there. So when I got to meet him, and it was because I wanted to gift him my first two books that were published at that point. Uh, my Nana's Remedies, Los Remedios de Mi Nana, and Hip Hip Hooray, It's Monsoon Day, Ajua Ya Llego El Chubasco, and I figured he would enjoy the bilingualism of the books and the culture and traditions that are shared in the books, as well as the artwork. So when I gifted those to him, he called me a week later and asked me if I would come back to visit him because he wanted to give me a gift. And he also told me how touched he was by these books because the culture in them reminded him of his childhood. 
When I came to visit him, he gifted me a book that I didn't know existed, which was an autobiography that he co-wrote with a friend of his and um, who was also an attorney. And the the title of that book has the word that you just used a minute ago, and it's adversity is my angel, is the title of his autobiography. And that's where the inspiration came for me. When I met him, I did not have any thoughts about writing a book about his life. But once I started reading his story, it touched me so deeply that I actually had a dream about it. That's what I was going to ask is, you know, by interviewing him and talking to him and learning more about him, how much you identified with what he went through and maybe some of your own upbringing. I identified greatly with all of it and, or a lot of it, I should say. I'm not an attorney or a judge or an ambassador, but I'm an ambassador of education and bilingualism and aspects that that are so rich from growing up on the border. And so when I had this dream, I don't remember my dreams often very clearly. And that the next morning I woke up and it was very clear because it just was going round and round in my head. Raulito becomes the governor. And right then I knew that I was meant to write a children's book about his life. Ronnie, we're grateful that you are an ambassador of education. Thank you so much for this book. Raulito, the first Latino governor of Arizona. It's a bilingual flip book and it's an award winner. Ronnie Rivera Ashford, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. Thank you, Tom, so much. And I hope everyone out there will realize that a gift of a book is a gift you can open over and over again. So enjoy. You can find out a bit more about Ronnie Rivera Ashford on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, tales on the road about legendary troubadour Bob Dylan. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. Whether your business is new or deeply rooted, large or small, you can share what's great about it while supporting a vital community service, KJZZ. It's a fact that listeners trust and support companies that sponsor KJZZ, and by becoming a sponsor, you build a stronger connection to everyone in your community. Get connected today at SponsorKJZZ.org. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. With everything from groceries to orthodontics, yes, really, available on demand, why not public radio? Make playing KJZZ part of your smart speaker routine to stay informed on your schedule. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Thanks for listening to this Season 10 opener. Got a poison headache 
but I feel alright. I'm pledging my time to you, hoping you'll come through too. Many will recognize that iconic song entitled Pledging My Time. It's by Bob Dylan. The iconic singer-songwriter has been entertaining audiences for decades, and he seems to have no quit late into his life. Dylan was reluctant for the majority of his time to be interviewed, so our final guest took a different tactic to examine his music through the words of those who have played with the troubadour. Ray Padgett is a music journalist who recently released a book of conversations with Dylan band members and titled it after that famous song, which appeared on the 1966 album Blonde on Blonde. I have been writing about music for about 20 years now, if you count starting in high school, largely about cover songs. I've written a couple books about those, but throughout been a Bob Dylan, super fan, obsessive. He played into my first two books. And then a couple of years ago, I started an email newsletter about Bob Dylan in concert, which eventually led to this book. And it's called Pledging My Time, of course, a very famous Bob Dylan song. Why did you choose that as the title? It seemed to fit the theme of what came across in the book in two ways. One, you know, I'm talking to all these different musicians who in various ways have pledged their time often years to Bob Dylan and his music. You know, some of them spent nine months a year, every year on the road with them for like a decade. And then secondarily about Bob Dylan pledging his time to us, the listeners, as someone who even now in his 80s continues to put out new music, continues to tour constantly, never rests on his laurels. I remember seeing him in the 1990s, and I was thinking at that point, gosh, I better take this opportunity to see him because I don't know how much longer he's going to be with us. His longevity is just amazing. Yeah, I mean, he just announced another new tour that's, you know, two months this fall. It's sort of fascinating that someone, Lord knows he doesn't need to financially, but yeah, right. <laughs> he just sort of finds his life creating music on the road. Have you ever had a chance to meet him? I know he does not like to be interviewed. No, unfortunately, I think I started too late. I mean, he used to do sort of occasional interviews, but he pretty much doesn't do any now, nor have I heard of any fan meeting him in about 20 years. You write that many musicians compare playing with Dylan to kind of like him playing jazz. And KJZZ is a jazz station at night, beginning at about 8 o'clock, we turn into KJazz. And so I think there's a, kind of an identification with folks who might be listening to this program and connected to what we offer here as a public radio service. Of course, he's not literally a jazz artist, but the feeling is the same. What did you mean by that? This kept coming up in interviews over and over again. And at first, I was a little taken aback. I mean, I'm thinking, this guy's not Miles Davis, right? But what right. these musicians meant, some of whom literally did play jazz in much of their career, they were talking about how it's always in the moment. Every night should be different. Every time you perform the song, even if you've performed that song a hundred times before, should be different. You know, there was this one musician who told me the story about one night, Bob Dylan is playing Knocking on Heaven's Door. He, this musician was a drummer. He typically did not play on that song. So he's sort of standing off stage waiting for his cue to come in. But then the song's just building and he's, he decides there could, there should be a drum fill here. So he sort of sneaks on stage and plays this big drum fill. Bob Dylan turns around and smiles at him. He just loves it. But the guy says, I knew I shouldn't do that again. If I did that exact same thing the next night, 
Bob would be pissed. So he never did it again. And that, again, is what they meant by comparing him to jazz. Just that sort of live in the moment. Don't just try to recreate the past. Yeah, and it's opposite from what I've heard of somebody who also has some longevity like John Mellencamp. I heard an interview with him recently when he was talking about how pretty much they play the same licks all the time. And if anybody gets out of hand in the band, everybody just kind of looks at him and it's like, what are you doing? You know? so. I mean, that's the norm, I would say, right? I mean, the Rolling Stones these days, they still do their best to make satisfaction sound more or less like it did in the mid 60s. It's fairly unusual for someone to take the approach that Dylan does. One thing that I wanted to ask you about the folks that you interviewed, what would we call them? Not necessarily house musicians, but not necessarily household names either, right? These are folks who have joined Dylan on the road off and on. That's right. With a few exceptions that are, you know, famous names, often these are like session guys, studio guys, sometimes people he literally picked up off the street. And that's no exaggeration that just sort of join his traveling review for one year or 10 years. Well, and I love the presentation of it because it's a very conversational book. I mean, it's laid out in an interview format where a question is asked and then it's answered kind of like in a song, you know, and of course you make an ask and then there's a response. Did you choose that purposely or was that a publishing decision? No, that was my choice. I really wanted to serve primarily as a conduit to letting people tell these stories in their own words. I mean, in the actual interviews, if you listen to the raw tape, there's a lot more back and forth. I'm in there asking follow-up questions and confirming things a lot. But as much as possible, I tried to edit myself out. These people have amazing stories and who better to hear it from than then. Yeah, I really like that approach. It's one that I kind of replicate for this particular program. I, I like to let people talk. I like it to be a conversation. And those who are listening are in the room with us. For a younger listener of this podcast who maybe doesn't have a lot of connection to Dylan's music and his legacy, what might you tell them about why they should? In other words, why is Dylan still relevant in 2023? I think it's because he's always changing and he's always evolving. And at this point, there are so many distinct and different periods and sounds of Dylan that there's almost something for everyone. Like I started out as a fairly young listener myself. You know, I was in college, surrounded sometimes, you know, by by baby boomers going to these shows. And I didn't revere the 60s stuff. I mean, I like it's great. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not like, you know, Highway 61 is the be all and end all. And when I talk to listeners in their 20s now, you know, some people come in because the 80s stuff when there's synthesizers and they find that fun or some people love, you know, the sort of gospel stuff with the big backing singers. I think, you know, the idea that Dylan is sort of this relic of the 60s, my impression is that the young people who are fans don't seem to think that way. And I see no reason why anyone trying to get into him should either. Start wherever you want. Pledging My Time, Conversations with Bob Dylan Band Members is a new book by Ray Padgett. Ray, thank you so much for coming to Word. Thanks so much for having me on. You can find out a bit more about Ray Padgett on our website, word.kjzz.org. We hope you've enjoyed this Season 10 opener of KJZZ's Word Podcast. We're back with another episode on September 26 when we launch our first contest of the season. In the meantime, I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening to Word. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.